there once was a congregation that was about to construct a new church building. And so a building committee was formed and over the course of consecutive meetings passed the following resolutions. Number one, we shall build a new church building. Number two, the new building is to be located on the site of the old one. Number three, the material in the old building is to be used in the new one. And number four, we shall continue to use the old building until the new one is completed. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about the church as a building. And no, I'm not talking about this building. If you want to talk about this building, you're welcome to come and attend one of our trustee board meetings if you really want to. No, we're going to be talking about a picture that the Apostle Paul uses when he speaks about the church today as a building. This building, Paul speaks of, has not been built with human hands. It's not built with the typical materials you'd buy at Menards like cement and two-by-fours, nails, drywall, carpeting, etc. No, in fact, this building has been built on a message squared with a person and continuing to be worked on by the Holy Spirit. This building is God's temple, the house of the Lord, and it is the church. And picture this, we are that temple. The gods have always been in the real estate business, except they were never interested in a fixer-upper to move in and spruce up. Deities in the ancient world were interested in new developments that their dedicated mortal worshipers constructed for them to occupy. Therefore, to speak of God or God dwelling in a house or a temple is not a foreign concept to our original first century Ephesian recipients of this letter. In fact, the Ephesian Christians could probably picture in their minds a couple of concrete examples of houses for deities in their world, starting with one actually that's right in their backyard. The Temple of Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was located in Ephesus. Double the size of Athens' Parthenon, this colossal structure was built in the honor of the Greek goddess Artemis, or Diana if you're Roman. Artemis was the goddess of chastity, hunting, wild animals, forest, childbirth, fertility, and construction of this wonder of the ancient world began centuries before the time of the church existing in Ephesus. In 550 BCE, work began on the project, and it took about 120 years for it to be finished. Yet in the 4th century BC, an arsonist deliberately burned down the temple of Artemis. I guess the goddess of Artemis was busy that day to protect her house from an attack like that, but the Greek historian Plutarch notes that the goddess of fertility was actually preoccupied that day, coincidentally with the birth of a Macedonian boy named Alexander. And perhaps you know him from your world history class as Alexander the Great. But the temple of Artemis did not remain in ashes for long. The temple was rebuilt on the same exact spot in the same exact design. And perhaps some of the ancestors of the Ephesian Christians contributed their money and jewelry to fund this civic reconstruction of Artemis' temple. And it is this rebuilt temple of Artemis that the Ephesian Christians could probably picture in their minds when they hear the word temple. It may not even be too far-fetched to picture that some of these Christians may have been prior worshipers in this temple before coming to faith in Christ. 
Maybe they pass by the temple on their way to work. Maybe they do business or trade near the temple complex. But if images of the temple of Artemis did not come to mind for them, perhaps for Paul and other Jewish Christians, the temple in Jerusalem would have crossed their minds. The temple in Jerusalem was originally intended to be the permanent place for Yahweh God. You may know that the temple replaced the mobile tabernacle that traveled with the children of Israel as they wandered in the desert en route to the promised land. After God set his people free, he commanded the Israelites to build him a dwelling place. And for 400 years, it served its purpose as a place where God would visibly show up and make his presence known to the entire Israelite community. God could be intimately communicated here by Moses and Joshua. God would be worshipped and praised by the people here. God would be present to receive the sacrifices by the Levites to atone for the people's sin. All of God's people knew that God's presence dwelt in that structure located in a tent in the middle of their camp. But once Israel got to the promised land... And they crowned a monarch. The idea was tossed around about a permanent dwelling place for God. A fixed location where God's presence could reside. And it's King David, this man after God's own heart, that selected Jerusalem to be his capital city. And he wanted to build the temple in his neighborhood. Except you may know that God did not allow David to build a temple. And this ambitious building project was then passed on to his son, Solomon. And after determining the specific blueprints and purchasing the exact materials and seven years of arduous, tedious labor restrictions, Solomon consecrated that temple as God's new permanent house. The mobile home of the tabernacle was no more as God descended upon that temple and the God of Israel was publicly affirmed to find his pleasure in that place and you could find him there. And this first temple, Solomon's temple, would survive for about 370 years until it was destroyed and burned to the ground by the Babylonians when they invaded Jerusalem. And it laid in ruins until decades later when the exiled Jews returned to Jerusalem and under the leadership of the prophet Haggai and the governor Zerubbabel and others, a new house for God was built to replace the destroyed one. This second temple would actually labor to be, later be renovated and refurbished by a man known as Herod the Great in the years preceding the first century. You actually probably have heard Herod the Great. He did other things besides appeasing and getting some political points for refurbishing the Jewish temple, but he's actually the same Herod who sought to murder innocent baby boys in a little town called Bethlehem when some magi from the east told him that a king was born there. This second, recently refurbished temple is the temple that likely former Pharisee Paul and Jewish Christians would picture in their minds when they speak of God's dwelling place. They grew up in Sunday school hearing the history of this building, the theology surrounding it, and they may have even pilgrimed to it to visit it on holidays and special occasions. So God's house is clearly in Jerusalem. Where else could it possibly be? And Paul subverts all of the Ephesian expectations when he speaks of God's new temple. The God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ does not dwell in a temple in Jerusalem any longer. Nor does he choose to dwell in a glamorous temple like the one in Ephesus, yet somewhere else. 
God chooses to dwell in a different sort of building, one that he is diligently working on to construct at this very moment, one not built with materials from this earth, one that the gates of hell will not prevail against. God chooses to dwell in the assembly of his people. That's God's temple. The Apostle Paul has previously told the Ephesians that God has gone to great lengths to form his family, cutting through the divisions that human beings have created. God has adopted and grafted in the Gentiles into a chosen nation known as Israel to form them into a new people, a new family. And so the primarily based, or primarily Gentile-based Ephesians, they're no longer strangers and aliens, but they are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it's this joint family of Jews and Gentiles that God states his presence will be found dwelling in their company. If you're looking for God, you'll find him residing and living among his people, which is made up of a diverse plethora of human beings. God's people are God's temple. God is dwelling in his new temple. God is dwelling in his church. God is dwelling with Paul tells the Ephesians that they themselves, flesh and blood, not plaster and drywall, they themselves as a community, not single isolated entities, they together, when they are being the church, they are God's dwelling place. They are God's home. And similar to the previously establishments God has chose to reside in as God's temple, in our gatherings as a family of God, we assemble to communicate and pray with God. We assemble to worship and praise God. We assemble to confess and repent our sins to God because God's presence is dwelling in our midst. And so the functions of the temple have remained consistent while the structure has changed. And it's this new temple for God that he has erected. It's not on unstable ground. It's not founded on human ambition or national pride. God has meticulously chosen to build this new temple on a different and a better foundation, starting with the ministry of the apostles and prophets. The apostles were those that were sent out with a message, namely the news concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were the heralds of the good news of God's salvation in the person of Jesus. This group is originally limited to the original 12 apostles, Paul himself even, and perhaps other men and women who carried special authority because they were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. The mention of prophets is a curious one for Paul. When one hears prophets, you may jump to the prophets in the Old Testament, and that very well may be the case. But given its placement after reference to apostles, perhaps Paul is also saying that there are now Christian or New Testament prophets. In reality, the role of the prophet, if you break it down, is just simply a spokesman or a messenger for God. God uses prophets as his mouthpiece and vessels to deliver a word to his people, and the message on the lips of the prophets is the same as that on the apostles. Jesus is alive, and he's ushered in a means of salvation. These two groups are singled out because they are recipients of revelation. Paul is saying that the teaching and message of these two groups is the basis on which the church rests. All Christians as part of this building are founded on the revelation and instruction conveyed by these people. And in turn, that means the church as God's temple is founded and rooted on the revelation of the apostles and prophets who professed the cornerstone. Paul tells the Ephesians that Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. 
And the significance of this claim is only made clear when we understand the significant and critical role cornerstones played in ancient engineering and architecture. Today, cornerstones have a different purpose. They're more decorative or ceremonial slabs of rock with trinkets we often place inside them or dates that we chiseled on the side of them. But that's not what Paul is communicating with Christ being the cornerstone of the church. Cornerstones were the first stones laid and set for a building's foundation. They determined the layout of the rest of the structure. All the other stones of the foundation were set in reference to the cornerstone. It was critical that cornerstones were not faulty or ill-placed as any error in the cornerstone would be detrimental to the rest of the building project. It was a load-bearing stone. Everything rested on its positioning. Hence, if Jesus is the church's cornerstone, it means that everything is aligned and squared with him. The rest of the foundation, the message of the apostles and prophets, is leveled with the person of Jesus. The church is built on nothing else than the person and message of Jesus, church cornerstones also had significance beyond their architectural value. Ancient peoples, including the writers of the Old Testament, viewed cornerstones as immovable, impenetrable places in times of crisis. The woes of the chaotic natural world, much like floods, could not wash away cornerstones unlike other parts of the building. And the prophet Isaiah said, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And early Christians read this passage as speaking of Jesus Christ himself, a fitting reference to our Savior, immovable in the faces of chaos and darkness. And it's this foretold cornerstone and belief in him that the church rests securely for its salvation. The apostles and prophets are just a part of the church's foundation. They professed and taught the message concerning the cornerstone. However, it's the cornerstone itself that makes the rest of the structure possible and stable. But it's interesting to see see in this passage that when Paul speaks of the church being a building, he speaks of it as a growth process. It's as if This temple is still under construction, as if it's still a work in progress. He seems to speak to us as members of the church moving towards or growing into becoming God's temple. This sounds a bit like when Paul speaks of the body of Christ growing and maturing into its head. Except now Paul uses this same language to describe the construction process of this new dwelling place for God. I believe Paul is saying that there is momentum when it comes to being God's temple. It's not a finished project. It's still under development. Christ's work on the cross has broken down the barriers between human beings, and together human beings as the church are beckoned to grow collectively and to become a sanctuary and home for God. To be God's temple as a church means we join in the construction process already underway. Perhaps for some of us, we don't view the process of constructing a building as pleasurable. We don't find our joy from the process. We'd rather just move to the point where it's finished, where we can occupy it and enjoy it. The process of laboring, of building our Lego playsets or our model airplanes or our dream home pales in comparison, we believe, to the experience of actually the finished product. But the Apostle Paul seems to suggest that the church as God's temple will always be a work in progress, at least on this side of heaven. 
Jesus as the cornerstone has been set. Additional foundation has been laid by the apostles and prophets in congruence with the cornerstone. And now Paul is saying to the Ephesians and by extension us, with God's help, we can be God's temple by growing and becoming God's temple. We are perpetually building our church, both globally and locally, into God's temple by what we contribute to it. I think the first hurdle you must overcome to be God's temple is actually choosing to build it alongside God as opposed to simply looking at the blueprints and the schematics. Instead of hoping it will come into existence all on its own, we actually have to do it. And perhaps better to illustrate is someone whose neighborhood you may have visited when you were a child. Take a look at this video. Well, of course, they make all different colors and all different sizes and shapes. Look at the ends of these. Those are different shapes, you see, and sizes. I think I'll just draw something here. Do you like to draw with crayons? I do, but I'm not very good at it. But it doesn't matter. It's just the fun of doing it that's important. That's the way I usually draw a house. Have some windows. Have a window down here. Somebody to look for their mom or dad coming home from work. And a tree. What about a person over here? Some hair. Maybe I should use some uh, different colors. I wouldn't have made that if I'd just been thinking about it. Just pretending about it, it wouldn't be there. You can make believe it happens or pretend that something's true. You can wish or hope or contemplate a thing you'd like to do. But until you start to do it, you will never see it through. Because the make-believe pretending just won't do it for you. You've got to do it Every little bit You've got to do it Do it, do it, do it Then when you're through You can know who did it Cause you did it You did it You did it That's right And it feels good to do things No matter how anybody says it is feels good to have made something. Don't let God's temple just remain a noun. Embody it as a verb. Be God's temple. Do it. Do it. Do it. By what you do, by what you contribute to the building of God's house, will make it either a suitable place for God's presence to dwell in or not. Do it. Do it. 
do it. This is not a one-and-done construction process to be God's house. Rather, it's a regular, routine incorporation of all of our efforts, talents, abilities, and gifts. And it takes all of us. This is not something for the denominational leaders or pastors or theologians to do. Rather, we are all to do it. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul would later tell the church in Corinth. And the end result, if we do it, if we be God's temple, God will be present among us. The world will see our gatherings and know that God is with us. We will be what N.T. Wright rightfully says, a place where heaven and earth meet. In a way, just like the person of Jesus himself, who is fully divine and fully human, the church as God's temple will also be incarnational like Jesus. Our gatherings are supposed to be both divine and human when we gather as the church in a mysterious way. It is a divine human experience where creatures come into the presence of their creator. We gather in anticipation and expectation to be with God because God chooses to make his presence evident to us here as we gather in a special way. We will be in communion with God. God will be with us. And just let that sink in for just a moment. Stop and consider that for just a few seconds. Don't let the curse of knowledge rob you of the incredible reality that God desires to no longer dwell in sacred rooms or chambers, isolated away from his community and places built from things of this earth. No, the God of the universe, the creator of the cosmos, wants to inhabit and make his presence known whenever his people assemble, gather, and be his church. And just like the tabernacle in the desert and the temple in Jerusalem, the church, the body of Christ will be God's dwelling place. And Paul declares that the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells in the church. Because this has been God's end goal all along. God has always wanted to be in intimacy with his creation. It started in a garden where God would walk and talk with his, our original ancestors eons ago, except sin was introduced into the created order, severing the closeness and relationship with God that God wanted. And ever since, God has been moving and working to get back to that original relationship. And here was God's plan. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version. It started with a tent in the wilderness. It moved to a stone structure in the heart of a busy metropolis. It then became a living, breathing person. Jesus Christ, as fully God and fully man, came and dwelled among humanity in the most intimate way possible. Emmanuel, God with us, did the unthinkable by taking on human nature as the penultimate demonstration of the links to which God himself was willing to go to communicate how seriously he wants to be in community with humanity. And when God ascended back to the fall, the Holy Spirit came upon the church and God's presence now dwells within it. And if we actively and actually be God's temple, if we do it, God tells us that God will dwell with us. What this means is that for Christians, a church building is not a temple in the strict sense. It is the people themselves who are in the place where God is now deciding to live. And just like the temples God has previously occupied, where the Spirit of God descended upon them and consecrated them as holy, God will make us holy as well. Notice that the Spirit will help us be a dwelling place for God. And a byproduct of being the temple is God actually showing up and he will change us. 
We must not and should not be surprised when God actually shows up in his house, church. In fact, we ought to welcome with open arms the spirit of God that will permeate our faith community if we strive to be his temple. We must anticipate that God dwelling among us should change us. His holiness must be allowed to rub off on us. When our sin-sick souls come into close proximity with the holiness of God dwelling in our assembly, it should purge us of our sin. And we should not shy away from that reality. This is why we must work to be God's temple, to allow the Holy Spirit to mold and shape us, to make us holy, to set us apart in this world, to make us more into the image of the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And when God's presence is palpable to us, it'll be like a teacher that is zigzagging through the classroom and the desks. Because teachers know that there is power in proximity whenever they are teaching and lecturing. They can get up close and personal to see if people are paying attention. If a student needs help or a question, they don't need to raise their hand and wait for the teacher to come to them because they are right there. It keeps students accountable because it keeps them from doing something irresponsible, from them acting out because the teacher is right there. Teachers that circulate the classroom build relationships, personal experiences with their students. And studies find that it is actually a better way to teach than the invisible, somewhat tangible barrier in the front of the classroom between the desks and the teachers lecturing up at the front. The teachers that don't remain behind their desk or behind some sort of podium, the ones that actually get into the classroom and weave through, pedagogists tell us that they see better results when teachers do that because they are building relationships with their students. They are right there. They're not distant. And in a way, I think that's what God wants to do in our community. He doesn't want to be up at the front barking orders and instructions He wants to be weaving through all of us. God wants to be in our lives in a more personal way if we'll allow him to. God wants to walk up and down every one of these pews and make his presence known to each one of us. And when we have a question, when we have a concern in our heart, God is already right there beside us because he's already there. When we need accountability, God is there to heal and restore us because he's already there. When our sinful tendencies arise, God is right there to rightfully discipline us, but to also make us more holy like him. When we are hurting, we are in pain, God is not distant because God is already in our assembly. God is right there to make his presence known. And we should be praying that God would want to be present and dwell among us. We should not despise or rebel against his presence, even though it might sting or rub against our sinful nature. And the more we are exposed and around the holiness of God, the more it will seep into our very beings if we allow it to. Because maybe in school, or maybe right now, you actually don't like it when the teacher walks around the classroom (laughs) because it keeps on your toes. It keeps you from doing something perhaps ornery. It keeps you awake. (laughs) but can I encourage you that perhaps we should consider inviting God, longing for God, yearning for God to make his presence known in our community despite any hesitations we might feel. 
And so I'll leave you with some questions to consider. Do you believe that when we gather as Gibbon Baptist Church that God is present with us? When you arrive at your pew each Sunday, tune in online, arrive for Awana on Wednesdays, show up for our youth group or attend our Bible studies, are you expecting to find God here at Gibbon Baptist Church in the various activities that we do? And if not, how will you help and partner with our faith community to make it a better dwelling place for God right here in central Nebraska? The other question I have for you is how obvious is it to those outside these walls that God is with us when we gather? If you are uncertain about that, perhaps it speaks to how we leave this place and how we live as God's temple in the world so that people know God can be found when we gather here as Given Baptist Church. Because picture this, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so be God's temple. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face. And I know they feel the presence of the Lord. May that be our prayer, church.